this week on Dig Me Out. Jay, tell us why you didn't like this song. This is where the, the record died for me. <laughs> At the second song. It did. It did. It's a very special episode of Dig Me Out featuring the Afghan wigs. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 170 of season four for us, and this is what I'm calling a very special episode. If this was an 80s um, ABC special about uh, underage drinking or uh, some other calamity that affected teenagers it would be a very special episode perhaps tom hanks gotten into the uh into the uh bing cherries the marchino cherries the marchino cherries uh or uh, webster uh getting a or or not webster which was what was the one where was it different strokes they had the uh, child molester episode that's oh fun. yeah 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 but uh not to get derailed by 80s um sitcoms that went seriously dark but we are uh, we are revisiting and then breaking our regular format by reviewing a new album. We are we are treading on new territory, and we're doing it with a special guest um, to help us revisit the history of the Afghan Wigs and review their new album, Due to the Beast, which is out actually today. We were recording this a couple days ahead of time, but it's going to be released on the day that the album is released. Uh, from the website summerskiss.com, the compendium of everything, not just Afghan wigs, but Twilight Singers and Gutter Twins and Greg Dooley, uh, Mr. Lee Heidel. Did I pronounce that correctly, Lee? You did. And guys, thanks so much for having me on your child molester episode. That's <laughs> the best introduction I've ever received for anything. So fantastic. Do you have any stories you want to tell? Uh, you know, if this gets turns into an episode of Marin towards the end and I start confessing, then we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that when that happens. But we'll, we'll try to keep it on the up and up. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about Summer's Kiss. Um, how long have you been running the website and, and what was your impetus, I guess, for kicking that off? Yeah, well, I was uh, obviously a fan of the Afghan wigs. And when they disbanded in 98... Um, or after their uh, 98 album, 1965. So they toured through uh, 99. So after they disbanded, um, I think that there was just kind of a void, you know, when you have a favorite band, favorite music, and you kind of get into a routine and a schedule and you know to expect every three years to have something new come out. And there was a gap and, and Greg moved on to do the Twilight Singers. And I initially started a Twilight Singers fan site uh, when that project was still in its infancy, I guess. And that was going well. I was enjoying doing it. But then I kind of got that itch. And I was, I don't know, like it sounds kind of silly at this point, but the internet was still much more raw in the early 2000s than, than it is now. And there was this kind of, I don't know, urgency that some of this great content about the wigs would end up being lost. Um, there was a fan site about the wigs while the band was still active that was run by Meredith Borkov, and it was a great mm -hmm. site, but she decided to give it up. And so I was just like, well, all these great interviews and all of these great album reviews and what's going to happen to all this stuff. 
So in 2003, I put together summerskiss.com really just as a place to hold all of that old information about the wigs and kind of have it all in one place and kind of tried to, to work to collect that. And, and this is back when a lot of like news websites weren't saving their archives. Things would just disappear. And that was really kind of, uh, I don't know, sad, I thought. So that's why if you look through those archives on the site, there are a lot of full articles from a long time ago. And as they start getting more and more recent, you know, from threats of copyright takedowns, you get little excerpts of some of the more recent ones because people have learned that needs to stay up. So, uh, yeah, that's where it came from. And that's that's why I started it. And I remember that site that Meredith ran because I think there was guitar tabs oh, on yeah. there. And that's yeah. where I learned a lot of Afghan wig songs on guitar was going to that website. And um, when I was first learning guitar, uh, you know, picking out those guitar tabs and figuring out how to play Honky's Ladder or the bass line to uh, Debonair or something like that. And uh, that was, yeah, I remember the early, early days when it, when a lot of that stuff wasn't even in like f- full, uh, it was like just text. Like there wasn't even like a lot of um, graphic images to go along with it. So, and then there was also a, wasn't there like an email mailing list? Uh, still the, is. Yeah, still is. Um, okay. It was called, uh, yeah, Meredith started that as well. It kind of had the, the name The Congregation after the, the Wigs record. And uh, I guess in the last year or so, uh, most of that activity has moved to a, a private Facebook group. So a lot of those old timers are still around and still talking about Greg and all his projects. And it's it's kind of cool because the anonymity of a mailing list, you know, from back in the day for people who are old enough to remember those um, was interesting because you kind of got to form your own basis for all these people. And you kind of only knew them by whatever handle they came up with to call themselves by or some random email address that they used. But now when you can see like a picture of somebody right next to it and a picture of their kids, it, it's kind of, it, you know, it takes the mystery out of it, but it also lets you see you're a part of a real community of real people, which is cool as well. So here's what I like to do. Usually we, we talk history of the band and then we get some Facebook feedback from our, our fans on our, our Facebook page and on our Dig Me Out website. I'm actually going to do the Facebook feedback first because we're going to spend quite a bit of time on the history. Because uh, when I posted that we were going to be spending a... a a full episode on the wigs and, and really diving into their career and, and the new record. Um, we got a lot of feedback. So I'm going to read a couple of things that people posted um, and then we'll get into the history. So first, uh, David Gorgos, a frequent contributor to the show has been a guest. He said during their final tour, saw them at the TLA in Philly, awful show, sloppy, then went up to New York city two days later to the, for the Bowery ballroom show. And they blew me away. Guess they feed off the crowd do I have to pick a favorite album? 1965 is brilliant. Gentleman is intense. Congregation is lust, is lush. Black love is soulful. All are stunning. Brandon Trammell, frequent commenter, says, I've seen Dooley every time he's been through the Detroit since 93. Afghan wigs, Twilight Singers, Gutter Twins, solos, solo shows, etc. Still one of my all-time favorite singer-songwriters. Saw the wigs last year, and they were probably as good as I've ever seen them. Uh, Eric Grubbs former guest and contributor uh, a band that can really do no wrong black love is probably my favorite we'll get into what our favorite records are from the wigs later uh, i also want to get into where we discovered the wigs i think that would be an interesting thing as we go through the history of the band uh, todd green says this news excites me well i'm glad to hear that todd uh chad charles hoffman says yes can't wait gavin reed also frequent contributor and former guest 
Can't wait, guys, for both the new Wigs record and the pod. Derek Ashley, I've pre-ordered the new record and cannot wait to plop down on the recliner, enjoy some beers, and inhale this on vinyl. I've enjoyed the Afghan Wigs throughout their career. I'd love to say that Gentleman has gotten me through a shit ton of crazy times. That album feels like it's speaking to you, and this is why we still talk about these guys. Andrew Martin Dare, also former guest contributor, got the new album and it's killer. Shawn Michael Foster, former guest contributor, can't wait. As jaded and unimpressed as I've been over the years, every time I hung out with Dooley at his bar in L.A., I was I was always energized. Or was it the drugs? <laughs> and the, Holly uh, Gletty, so glad they're together again. And Kip Blount, can't wait to hear this. And then over at digmeoutpodcast.com, Barb Abney, former WOXY DJ and host on the current Minnesota Public Radio, says, can't wait to hear this. So, What's um, up, Barb? Yeah. yeah. I know Barb, yeah. And a, friend of, a friend of a friend, Matt Shiverdecker, who also worked at WXY, was a college uh, friend of Jay and I. And, and, and Jay, you're in the same town as him now. He's down in Austin with you. Um, they both worked together at OXY back in the day. So that's our, that's our feedback from the, our podcast uh, fans and, and listeners. So let's get into the history. This is where I think, I think there's a bit of myth-making with the wigs in some respects because... I remember hearing uh, when I first discovered the wigs. I will get into when that happened, but I, f- I remember hearing, "Oh, you know what's cool about the wigs is that the band formed in jail." And I was like, "What is? What do you mean?" They're like, "Oh, the guitar player and Greg Dooley met in jail." Have you ever heard that story, Lee? <laughs> I've heard it many, many, many times. <laughs> now that's and, not- you know. Yeah, I'm not going to – I think that you're right. The The term myth-making applies to a lot of, of the Wigs' career. And I think that goes back to, you know, these guys grew up in a time when, you know, Zeppelin was coming up and you you saw, like, Song Remains the Same and you just had these kind of weird connotations of who these people were and, and where they came from. And I think that there was a definite um, impetus to – to spin some things a certain way. And the band themselves have, have done their part to um, encourage some of that from time to time. It's, it's shown up in press releases here and there. <laughs> Jay, you and I have talked about this in the past where it was almost better when you didn't know everything about a band. And, and sometimes there was like legends around the band that, you know, preceded them that made them larger than life. Yeah, do you absolutely. think that do you think that the Wigs are really one of the last bands to sort of like embrace that? Um, yeah, I do. I think there's um, at least going back to the early and middle period. You know, there was always even now. If you think about like, um, I don't know if anybody follows Dooley on tw- on uh, Instagram, but like even his uh, persona on there is sort of mysterious. Like he doesn't ever, you know, he takes these really like artistic photos of like strange areas and scenes and you can't quite place like if it's really him or where he's at or you know you don't ever see people or it's never him you know it's kind of this mysterious you know figure taking these photos so i mean i think that's always been a part of of them um and then you know he'll pop up in the news here and there or you'll see a picture of him hanging out at some bar or like like us sometimes in columbus we'd see him there and it was actually you know funny i remember um one time we were hanging out in a bar in, in Columbus and, you know, word got around that Dooley was going to be there that night. And I remember everybody was super excited to try to meet him. And I'm like, I don't want to meet him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 
there's no possible way like in my mind you know the character i have there's no possible way the real person could be cooler than that you know what i mean like i've created this persona in my head that goes along with the music and i'm not really interested in, in breaking that so i'd rather just stand on the side of the bar and just you know <laughs> i don't need to do that so yeah that's always been part of the part of that for me yeah i i, I kind of agree with you i think i tried to avoid <laughs> actually because i think we, we were at that same bar and i was like eh, i don't think i need to meet him yeah because then the stories come back about the people that did meet him and what he said or they were at a party afterwards and like what he did at the party and you're just like well that sounds kind of lame or you know like that doesn't <laughs> That's not nearly as what I, you know, as cool as what I pictured in my head when I listen to Gentlemen. Exactly. So according to the internet, the real story is that uh, Dooley was in a band called the Black Republicans and John Curley, the bassist, would join that band. Curley introduced Greg Dooley to Rick McCollum, who was a guitar player in Cincinnati. And Dooley and McCollum sort of bonded over a a love of R&B and... The Wigs came together in, in 86, sometime in 86, uh, based around getting together and, and starting work on a Temptations cover. The Black Republicans broke up. Uh, Dooley went to Arizona, started working on some material, and that became what was eventually the first Afghan Wigs album, which is called Big Top Halloween, and that came out in 1988 on their own uh, label called Ultra Suede. And that wasn't even really supposed to come out. It was just that they had done some demos, and then all of a sudden John Curley was making album covers, uh, and they pressed like a thousand copies of that, one of which ended up in the hands of Jonathan Poneman, who is the co-founder of Sub Pop. So, Lee, does that sound more like the official story, that the, the actual true story of the Wigs beginning? It's- that sounds pretty close. There may be a couple of things in uh, slightly different orders, but I would I would say that that is probably as close as we're going to get to an official beginning of the Afghan Wigs. Yeah, it's important to note. So this is you know late '80s in terms of Sub Pop, which was where Ponen was the co-founder of. Um, Sub Pop was still under the radar nationally. They were they were you know a growing presence in Seattle, obviously with their compilations and the bands that they had signed. Um, with the wig signing to them, they became the first non-Seattle band, which was a big deal, to actually sign to Sub Pop. And it was originally they were only going to release one single, but uh, they had ended up uh, landing them a full contract, a full like record contract for uh, an album, and actually ended up multiple albums um, with Sub Pop. And they ended up recording with Jack and Dino and releasing Up In It in 1990. Some of those songs were on Big Top Halloween, I believe, not in the same, necessarily, not the same recordings, but some of the same tracks. And But for the most part, it was a, a brand new record, and it got them some college radio play, uh, primarily to the song Retarded, uh, across the country.
and they went on a tour with Mud Honey and some other bands. That was followed up by uh, the 1992 album Congregation, and then an EP called Uptown Avondale. Now, I had heard that basically the Uptown Avondale was a con- like a contractual obligation that they had. They knew by that point that they were leaving, the but they owed another record to Sub Pop. Is that true? Do you know anything I don't know. about that? You know, I've never actually heard that theory um, because I know that there was never any kind of bad blood between the Wigs and Sub Pop other than the occasional not getting paid, which was a problem with Sub Pop at the time. Right. Um, their their finances were in disarray. Um, they would send bands out on tour and not be able to get them home, that sort of thing. Um, so I know that there was some of that, but I, when uh, the next record, when Gentleman came out, uh, Sub Pop still was able to have uh, rights to that on vinyl. So they still continued to work with Sub Pop. Um, after they left, but I've, I've never actually heard that was due to a contractual agreement, but it, that may have very well have been the case. That might have been one of those, again, one of those like myths that's been permeated in various, you know, articles that there was, you know, the supposed bidding war to get them on Electra. Yep. And, and that was basically their, not necessarily in a bad way that they were contractually obligated, but their like last piece of uh, the puzzle in terms of um, the sub pop contract and it's an actually it's a pretty important release because it's the first time that the wig sort of blatantly or greg dooley sort of blatantly um lays out their soul influence i don't think you necessarily hear the soul influence on up in it you hear like the replacements and husker do and the sort of mud honey punk of you know the late 80s it's not necessarily uh, in the same way as um congregation would show off a little bit more of that of that soul influence and obviously with like gentlemen and and then going into the black love but uptown avondale is like clear is like the clear evolution of the band going from their sort of like punk midwestern roots to a uh, i think at one point they were described as uh nirvana meets marvin gay is is what i've heard (laughs) is someone sure Someone using yeah. that sort of description. And I think that uh, I think that you're right in a lot of ways with that record because it, it is such an overt soul record. Um, but for me, Congregation is the one where they really become the Afghan wigs that would carry throughout the rest of their career because that was the real seeds of a concept record of having a thread that, and it's not a strict concept record, but there's a thread that runs through the songs. There's a real cohesiveness to that record and that's also where they really start the pushing the covers at that point as well being mm-hmm. able to include songs that fit into their theme that they didn't necessarily write it's almost in a way they look at these albums like scoring a film and and they actually will use that notation in records that say shot on location instead of recorded at and it just like a, a music supervisor would go and find the right songs to flesh out a movie uh, you know they're writing the movie with their songs and then occasionally they'll find some obscure track or in the case of congregation a song you know like the temple from jesus christ superstar and shove that right into it to have the perfect twist it gives people a touchstone it it kind of shows where they're coming from in a bigger picture to carry throughout the rest of the record so for me congregation is is the one if you look back over their catalog that's the one where they started things started to click they toured long enough they had played long enough and the real identity of the band starts and then Uptown Avondale, they start to really kind of flex that soul R&B muscle pretty hard. And it's think, funny. Oh, go ahead, Jay. I was just going to say, in terms of congregation as well, uh, that's, the for me, musically, where 
the first record is very much about guitars and not that the other records aren't, but like Congregation is a shift to really a strong focus on drums as part of the band, like not just, you know, providing a beat of behind guitars. It's, it's an integral part of what makes the song, the song is, you know, the drum beat and it's mixed louder and fuller and it's just sonically. And from also a structure standpoint, you can tell that the drums become a bigger part of the sound of the band at that point. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, that first record is very Minneapolis punk. It's very replacements. It's very Husker Du. And mm-hmm. with that second record, there's a groove that starts to happen. And that's drums and that's bass. That's where John really starts to kind of come up with these through bass lines that are have a nice counter to the guitar rhythm, to that jangle. They start to really start to push at that point. And it becomes much more about groove. And then Uptown Avondale where they're taking these, uh, not just R&B songs or soul songs, they're taking songs that people know. Uh, they're taking a Band of Gold. Um, they're taking Come See About Me, for goodness sakes. And they're putting it in a minor key, and they're slowing it down, and it's a guy singing it. And that's where the gender dynamics, too, there's some of that in Congregation, of course, with like I'm Her Slave and that sort of thing. But the gender issues uh, really start to kind of come out in that EP. Now, it's funny that you had earlier mentioned about the, the album sort of taking on like a soundtrack quality because one of the uh, supposed clauses in the Electra contract is that um, it featured uh, a, a clause that they would fund a script that Greg Dooley was writing for a film, for a feature film. Like that was part of the contract is that they would find the, the money and the funding to, to film a movie that he was writing. Whether that's true or not, it's it's one of those ludicrous like 90s uh, record contract uh, stories that you hear about where you know bands are getting thrown tons of money by multiple labels to get them to sign and they're throwing in these wacky uh, addendums to, to get you know push it over the edge. Whether that's true or not, I mean, I don't, I've never seen the, co- the record contract for Electra, so I don't know if that's true or not, but it's it's one of those things that no, if you if you read an article here or there, that that's that's what they say is in this yeah, is yeah. in that contract. No, same here. Uh, I've always heard that. I want to say that at some point back in the day, I read it in a press release. You know, I've, I haven't laid hands on it, and I definitely haven't seen the contract either. But that's uh, he had bought the movie rights to a, a book called Spoken in Darkness, and I think that the plan was to adapt that into a feature film. And I think that's the the movie that they allude to in that. Uh, but that, as far as I know, never got past a probably a script stage. So after signing the Electra, they went to Ardent Studios in Memphis, where such folks as Bob Dylan and Led Zeppelin and ZZ Top and Big Star had recorded. And 
those sessions turned into the album Gentleman, which was released in 1993, was really was um, received positive uh, raving reviews in the Rolling Stone and uh, Village uh, Voices Paz and Jop critical uh, critics poll in 1993. Um, it would I would guess I think had the highest charting singles and uh, modern rock top 20 and then um, Airplane MTV. I, I think this would you call like the sort of commercial peak for the wigs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Uh, this is, um, you know, to turn back the, the dial, uh, this is when MTV was really starting to make that shift into promoting more of alternative music. When, the videos from sub pop bands or, you know, Caroline artists or all these different smaller label bands would be seen outside of 120 minutes for the first time. And I think that that's right. When gentlemen was coming along, um, they of course made videos for songs off congregation uh, and off the uptown Avondale EP. But with gentlemen, there was the chance I think to take this record that was so incredibly cinematic and thoughtful and put together so deliberately and translate those songs into really stunning visuals uh, as well. And, and this is the period where I got into the band or heard them for the first time because of those videos. So it was on MTV. You saw the video on MTV and we're like, Whoa, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was staying. I was, I'm sure I saw it on 120 minutes, but uh, you know, I saw the video for debonair and it was bonkers because it was, you know, there's this great opening tracking shot in that video of this kind of lower class white family sitting out front in these kind of track homes. Kind of, it just had this whole vibe of, you know, I grew up in the South and, and there's just people who sit out in their front yard in their lawn chairs and just stare at the highway kind of vibe as you're going past. And, and then there's Dooley in this white suit and the goatee and the cigarette. And from there on out, it was just this song about uh, things that my 15-year-old self had no business knowing about. So, <laughs> And then, of course, uh, they got some, I guess you'd say, placements in various uh, uh, TV shows and, and movies. My So-Called Life would probably be the, the most prominent one in terms of, in 1994, they were on that soundtrack. And then uh, in 96... They were in the soundtrack for the film Beautiful Girls. They actually played in the movie The Bar Band and did a couple of covers, including Barry White's Can't Get Enough of Your Love, Babe. And Dooley was actually the executive producer on that uh, soundtrack. So from there, we go to Black Love, which is the second album for Electra. That came out in later in 96. And it was the f- first album, and well, the actually the only album, with uh, the new drummer, Paul, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Bukinaji? I'm going to go with Bukinyani. We'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> who replaced Steve Earle. Do you know the story of why Steve Earle was replaced? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, Wouldn't it be rather just have a, a fantasy about some crazy thing? It, all these things, you know, it comes down to, I think, uh, when you're traveling, when you're in a, a working rock and roll band, when you are in a van with three, four other guys, 24-7 for 11 and a half months out of the year, they're just personality things that come up. And uh, that's just a, a case of, I think, that the personalities at that point weren't meshing anymore. And it was 
let's get somebody else in this van who, you know, we can mesh with a little bit better at this point. So it's, it's not a huge salacious thing. I, there are some details of it that are pretty interesting that aren't my story to tell, but uh, it's uh, it was just a, a change. It was time for a change, and it wouldn't be the last time a, a different drummer sat on the throne for the Afghan Wicks. No, not at all. Now, this is where I was introduced to the band, which was with Black Love. Um, Jay and I were working at College Radio Station, uh, WFAL in Bowling Green, Ohio. And the I remember the, getting the single first for Honky's Ladder in the studio, playing that. It was the edited single, so the F's were uh, the F bombs were <laughs> edited out. We played it, and I had not, I was not familiar with the wigs at this point, so I was like, "Whoa!" And then the video came out. That was on either Alternative Nation or 120 Minutes. I think it's like duly at like a podium or at a uh, you know preaching from a from a church uh, podium. Pulp- a pulpit. Pulpit, pulpit yes. sword, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pulpit. That's what I was looking for. Um, Tim goes to this, a lot of church, you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, the second single was, I believe, Going to Town off that record. And I was sort of like, what is this band? And went back from there, picked up Gentlemen, uh, went to the, the local record store. I don't think they had Congregation, so I think I actually had to order it in order to get it. And then uh, sort of became uh, obsessed w- with them at that point, was looking for singles. Was looking. I, was, I bought like the, the Honky's Ladder single and the going to town single which had covers of um if i only had a heart and uh a couple other tracks and i can't remember what they were all of them were now um but there was uh a lot of like going back and figuring out this band going backwards at that point um jay what's your introduction where did you get you know come into with this band uh it was actually gentleman and the song gentleman i saw the video on mtv i can't remember how and at the time i was um i think it was the 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 libraries a lot of libraries were like you could go get cds like take out check out cds so i started um going to the library to check out cds so this was one of the the cds i checked out uh, based on that video and it was i was really drawn to it i think um for a lot of ways you know what what lee talked about in terms of how mysterious and cinematic and just it just contrasted I, I guess for me they were the first band that after the big like grunge thing they were the first band to be different but not be i don't know you know like glum you know depressed mm-hmm. flannel wearing you know kind of not to put all that down but at some point it was sort of like you know it's a pretty shallow pull in terms of like you know subject matter when it comes to music right um, and this was the first band it was like wow you can be completely different new fresh not sound like anything i've heard before um but still be really kind of mysterious and i don't know just the, the whole potential of what this band could be um seemed really exciting at the time and um you know as a as a drummer at the time and somebody who loves guitar riffs that's really what got me to in terms of music you know what i mean it was uh it was just a different sound to this band than anything that else was going on at the time. I think Jay hit a really good point there that, you know, this was 
you know, where, you know, Soul Asylum is on the radio and you have this whole kind of sad boy thing through a lot of stuff, kind of that mopesterism and people who didn't want to be rock stars, you know, mm-hmm. Pearl Jam's decides to stop making videos because, you know, they're getting too much attention or, you know, you have the whole, um, you know, that kind of weird mid nineties thing where everything gets so politically correct and there's this real sense of watching whose toes you step on with everything and the feeling you got from the Afghan Whigs music, while it, it wasn't offensive or anything else, it, it just felt so honest in an era where everyone was trying to hold their tongue. Well, the one thing that I would learn about Dooley afterwards, only, I didn't see them live until this 1965 album, was what a, a larger-than-life stage presence he was. Because even though this was a band that was you know essentially playing smaller venues for the most part, unless they were taken out on tour by a, a really large band, they were playing, you know, a thousand seat or less venues. Personality wise, he was as, I guess you'd say dynamic um, from what I w- learned as, you know, David Lee Roth in terms of interaction <laughs> with the crowd and, and had this like persona and had, I, I think there was even like, um, fanzines that were dedicated to hating Greg Dooley. Um, uh, Have you ever read any of those? I've never even seen any of those. No, Uh, as far as I know, there was only one that was put out. And uh, and I think it, you know, it was one of those things that probably was 10 copies, you know, and and those fanzines were, the rumors of fanzines are always more important than the actual fanzines. When you actually get it, you see like, oh, well, whatever. You know, there was really nothing smart to it after all. But, But yeah, there was one that floated around for a little bit, but I've never actually seen one. The David Lee Roth comparison, I have never heard before, but I have a feeling that <laughs> a lot of people wouldn't think that was too far off. Just a very, uh, you know, involved performer. And it's not shtick. I mean, it's not doing, you know, splits on stage or riding a giant inflated microphone. But it, it's it's really creating a connection and it's reaching out and it's trying to engage. It's To me, it's much more akin to like seeing Kiss or something like that, where there's just a lot of you know, reach out into the audience and, you know, expecting that push back. And Greg was famous for saying, you know, uh, tonight we're the car and you're the gasoline. And that was a very real statement. And one of your Facebook uh, listeners posted about seeing the show he didn't like so much in, in Philly and then seeing them in New York and just being blown away. That was the way it worked. If you were a crowd who came and wanted to play along, if you wanted to make party, as Greg would say from the stage, that band would play until the venue made them leave. You would have three encore sets that would last for hours. And if they weren't feeling it, you know, they had another city to be in the next night. So they would give you a solid show and they would be done and then they would head out the door. And and Jay, I think you and I have both been to the same shows. The one was in Columbus um, for 1965, where. I, I thought it was an excellent show. I mean, they brought out one of the highlights was they brought out Marcy Mays to mm. do my curse because she's from Columbus and it made sense. And Harold it had with them, right? Harold Happy. Chichester, uh, Happy Chichester, who plays on uh, Black Love, 
and was in the on the first Twilight Singers album. He play, he came out and played that show. They did like two encores. They did they covered Rolling Stones Beast of Burden and they did uh Never Take the Place of Your Man by Prince and um you know, it was just one of those live shows that I'll never forget because it was so energetic and the crowd was so into it. And Derek you know, played too, right? Yeah, Derek Desenzo played. Did the steel um, drum stuff from 1965. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a part where Dooley started yelling at some guy. Um, you just narrowed it down. That could have been, I don't know how many shows. Right. He, he yelled at the guy and was basically like, I think it was something like, you know, he, the guy was like moshing. And he was, he was like mocking him. He's like, you're not going to get any pussy if you are moshing. <laughs> Look, this man has been in front of not just people who don't understand proper uh, show etiquette, but people who have actively tried to heckle him, who have tried to take the show down. And there's a rule that he has that is 100% true. It is the man with the microphone always wins. And <laughs> he will shut people down who tried to get in the way of a good show. And that was always another great part of that. And again, a part of that being a performer, uh, this guy could have done anything that involved a stage. If it wasn't singing, it would have been something else. And he would have been able to just take complete control of it. I think the David Lee Roth comparison is that um, they're both, they take on a role of master of ceremonies. Like yes. they're not just there as part of a band. They are actually, their main role is to, you know, to be the the conduit for all of this, to make all this possible and to be, you know, the, the person that, and it's even sometimes at the cost of, you know, singing. That's, yeah. that's a secondary thing. Like I am here for, to make sure that everybody, the band's, playing great the bands have uh, the fans are having you know fun and if you know like i'm conducting this whole event that's going on right now yeah that's fantastic jason i think that's a really good point i think that's exactly the way to describe it so i mentioned 1965 that album came out in 1998 we mentioned that earlier but it did not come out in electra the band actually left electra signed to sony columbia to release uh that record that record has some I would say departures for the band. Um, it's the first time that you hear, um, well, not the first time, but uh, nineteen or on nineteen sixty-five, you hear them fully embracing, I guess, the soul uh, with the use of horns, with the use of um, soul singers, with the use of. There's a lot more drum loops, which it's used very sparingly on, like going to town. There's a bit of a drum loop in that song, but the, basically the, the song is built around a, a real drum beat. Um, but it's it's a it's the evolution, I guess you could say, of the Afghan Wigs from a film noir-ish sort of introspective battle of the sexes to that record is much more of a, I don't know, I want to call it a party record. I know that Greg Dooley had described that at, at one point. Um that it's it has a, a party atmosphere on certain of the, some of the tracks like something hot and uh, uh, sixty six and, and some of those other records, but uh, it definitely I think is the proper bridge I guess you'd say from the Wigs to the Twilight Singers in terms of production and in terms of songwriting, um, especially the tail end of that record when you get into songs like Neglected and the Vampire Lenoir and and some of the other song even song like Crazy. Uh, have a, I think, a natural sort of progression into what the Twilight Singers would become, which was 
right around the same time, the Twilight Singers were originally a, I guess, a trio with uh, Dooley and then Sean Smith of Brad and Satchel and Pigeonhead, who's a previous guest of the show, and Happy Chichester of Holland Maggie, who's also a previous guest of the show. What the Twilight Singers turned into was basically a, I guess you'd say, the duly rotating multiple different folks uh, in and out of that band, which I don't know that that's what that originally was intended for. But what was your guys' take on, you know, having heard Gentlemen, I think Gentlemen and Black Love are natural sort of companions to me as far as records. What was your guys' take, do you remember, uh, when you first heard 1965? I felt a little betrayed the first time I heard it. I'll be honest. You know, I was uh, wrapping up my college career at that point, and we, uh, I worked at a college newspaper, and we got an advance of it and made a copy of it so I could listen to it in my car. And I was just, uh, I was so taken aback by what I saw as being just the lack of that real strong narrative, that really definitive point of view that I loved in those other records. But once I, you know, listened to it, and then once I went out and saw that tour and saw how amazingly those songs lifted the live performance based on the show I'd seen on the Black Love Tour, uh, that's where just being a, a fan of the band went to being uh, just full-on devoted to what Dooley was going to do. Because that's where I kind of saw the bigger picture and what the transformation was and where it was going. But at that time, when I first listened to it, these are these concise, really tight pop songs, you know, three and a half to five minute radio friendly songs. And they got placed in movies and they got, um, they didn't get any more airplay on the radio, unfortunately, but they did show that they were capable of this more commercial sound. And that's, Again, you know, being a, you know, disgruntled 22-year-old, I was kind of like, they've abandoned me. But later you realize that, you know, these are people with jobs. And not only that, but they're artists who are evolving and they want to do something new. And that's something new that they did paved the way to other amazing things. And with that, seeing those songs live, I, got, I really got into 65. But on that first listen, I, I thought it was a different band. I think um, I reacted pretty well to it. I, I I liked the pop side of the band, so it wasn't. It didn't. It obviously it was obvious. You know, it was obvious to me at the time that okay, they're you know they're trying to be as poppy as they possibly can with the format of this band. Um, but I kind of like that. I, I like that they had absorbed themselves in New Orleans to make this record, um, and and used musicians from there to augment the sound. And to me, that was. Um, always the theme of the record 
Um, I wish in some ways, I think it would have been benefited. It would benefit if the album cover and the title would have reflected that. Um, to me, when I listen to it, that's what I think of. You know, I haven't been to New Orleans, but, you know, this is my mental picture of what it's, you know, it's like, um, is this record. Um, so that part of it was interesting to me, and I always thought that that was the theme. I never quite understood what the astronaut in the title had to do with anything, but, um, yeah, I mean, it it, uh, it definitely... I, the, the present the live presentation brought a lot to these songs as well you know i did think a song like something hot which i like quite a bit I, I even at the time thought it was kind of a little overproduced and overdone um the live version of it you know kind of really brings it down to bare bones and um i think it makes you appreciate you know the quality of the song and not get kind of caught up in all the extra you know the soul singers and all the extra stuff going on um, and it's got a couple of my favorite Wick songs on it. You know, Uptown Again is, is an all-time favorite uh, for me. Um, you know, in 66 is always a fun song. So it's got some it's got some songs on it that I that I like quite a bit too. Um wouldn't say it's my favorite, but uh, I think I reacted to it pretty well and it stands up fairly well. And then uh, I think Jay and I we both went to what was then going to be the last wig show uh, in Cincinnati in uh they had a Hollow Maggie opened up for them, and then uh, they they opened the the Wigs opened the show with the boys are back in town, uh, with Harold Chichester on the second guitar, um, so they could do the double guitar stuff like like Tin Lizzy. And um, now what's ironic is that I don't think that was as good a show, even though it was like the last show, a big celebration, hometown. It felt like a little bit of. A, a lackluster show compared to that other 1965 show that we saw. Uh, do you remember that show at all, Jay? I do. I remember it being really good. That's funny. Huh. <laughs> I, I just remember just, because it was Cincinnati. I just think, I think the crowd was just so nuts. Like I just remember the crowd being like really, really into it. And I just remember them doing, I don't know. It seemed like they dug deeper into the catalog for that show too. I remember them playing stuff off of congregation and, I don't know. I remember them both being really good. And um, now I, I actually have the bootleg of that that show. When I listen to the bootleg, it doesn't sound nearly as good as I remember it. So maybe there's something to it. <laughs> maybe you actually heard the real show and I was caught up in the moment. Possibly, possibly. So that's 99, I'm guessing, is when we saw that show. And then the band, uh, essentially they were broken up by then, but they would officially break up in 2001. Um, the Twilight Singers album would come out in 2000 that I mentioned with Sean Smith and Her- Happy Chichester. Um, and that would become the main sort of songwriting vehicle for Greg Dooley, basically for the entire decade of the 2000s. They would release uh, Blackberry Bell in 2003 and then the Covers album in 2004. And then Greg Dooley would release a solo record of sorts called Greg Dooley's Amber Headlights. Uh, which was, like, I guess, a collection of various songs. And the one I, I remember talking to uh, Happy Chichester at one point, and apparently, so the, the first song on that record is called So Tight, and the drum beat is played by Happy Chichester, and he didn't know that that song was being used for anything. Like, he had basically just played a drum beat for, for Greg, and Greg was like, yeah, that's cool, and kept the recording, and then looped it and used it for that song, and he had no idea that it was going to be used for that. He gave, I mean, he gave him songwriting credit for the, you know, or not songwriting credit, but 
you know, credit on the record for playing the drum track, but he had no idea that that was being used. And then in 2006, Powder Burns. Uh, 2011, there was a bit of a uh, break there. Uh, Dynamite Steps was released. Uh, that was the up until now the last um, Twilight Singers record. But and then in between there, you have the Gutter Twins. And that's with Mark Lanigan, who first appeared on the Twilight Singers album Blackberry Bell. And then they would release an album together uh, called Saturnalia in 2008. And that was released on Sub Pop. So that was sort of the in-between of the Powder Burns and Dynamite Steps. And all this is covered, of course, at Lee's website, uh, Summer Kiss. Oh, you as did a well great as, job. <laughs> as well as uh, some other recordings or, or, or projects by John Curley after the Wigs had separated and um, Rick McCollum. I believe his band called, was called Moon Man. And uh, John Curley had, was in a couple bands. Uh, I'm trying to remember... Um, one of them actually opened for Twilight Singers, I think. Probably uh, Staggering Statistics. Yeah, Staggering Statistics. Yeah. And he's another one called Fists of Love, I think. That's right. Yep. I've never heard any of those bands. I have no idea what any of that sounds like. Which is, I, I should track that stuff down, but just been lazy over the years. <laughs> yeah, the other curly stuff doesn't sound anything like the wigs. So that's, uh, if you like pavement, the Staggering Statistics stuff sounds a lot like pavement. Yeah, I really don't like pavement. Yeah, I don't either. So. I don't either. So that's usually the touchstone that I give. Um, his bass playing is great in it, though. Very melodic. Um, really, it kind of is is the second voice in that music is his bass work, which is nice. And then the Fist of Love stuff I haven't heard a lot of, so I can't really say what they sound like. But So that pretty much takes us up to the new record. So it was kind of a, a not a long time coming. I mean, the band has been back together essentially since 2011. Uh, they played, I think it was All Tomorrow's Parties um, in 2011 was the, well, that's not even counting the 2006 temporary uh, reuniting for the Unbreakable rep- Retrospective, which had two new songs. It was in 2011 that it was announced that uh, the Wigs would play um, All, Tomorrow's Parties, All Tomorrow's Parties, I'll Be Your Mirror event in May of 2012 followed by another show in Asbury Park in September of 2012. And then they ended up playing some other festivals, uh, Primavera Sound Festival, Lollapalooza. And at this point, it was, I guess you'd say, the, the primary lineup of the Wigs in terms of it was Greg Dooley, Rick McCollum, and John Curley uh, with whatever drummer that they randomly had playing with them. I think it was... Uh, the drummer from the Twilight Singers at this point. And I can't remember who was playing because it wasn't Michael Horrigan who was the drummer on the last Wigs album. No, it was Cully Symington. And uh, Cully has been with a couple of Greg's projects. He played on the Gutter Twins tour and the most recent um, Twilight Singers record. And he's uh, the primarily the drummer for Ockerville River. Um, Cully's great, fantastic, amazing drummer. And he's a great addition to the band. So then they ended up playing uh, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon and performing a cover of a, a kind of an obscure soul song, See and Don't See. And then they released us and they released that as a free MP3 download. And then a second one, uh, they released Frank Ocean uh, cover of Love Crimes. That was in uh, July 
of uh, 2013, or sorry, 2012, or was it 13? I don't remember. What year did that come out? I'm getting I'm getting my years mixed up. Uh, uh, it, was I thought it was yeah. yeah, 2012. 2013, they played South by Southwest. Jay, you missed them by a year. With special guest Usher, which nobody saw coming. Uh, I think if any, if you could say who is going to be the guest on a on a Greg Dooley or, a, or an African Wigs show, I, I, I got to say Usher would probably be in the top. Oh, I don't know, five thousand. <laughs> not not one of the but uh, they and they ended up covering like a Sin Cane song, which is a band from Columbus. Totally bizarre uh, choice there, but again, like you mentioned, Greg likes to listen to a lot of stuff. Yep. So, um, and then, uh, in January of 2014, uh, Bob Odenkirk tweeted that the Afghan wigs were going to have a new record out. And that's mm-hmm. how everybody learned that the Afghan wigs were going to be putting out a new record this year, uh, in April. And I think like the next day, Sub Pop was like, yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> way to blow the, uh, way to blow the information for us that we were working on. Um, I don't know. To me, it seemed like too perfect. It like, it was like Greg was playing golf or something, and uh, Bob Odenkirk overheard them talking about the Afghan wigs and remixing a song or something like that, and then took a picture of him with Greg and tweeted it. Uh, it almost seemed like a an intentional, like celebrity it, it was not it yeah. was not yeah it was not uh, it it just happened to be fortuitously timed that it was close enough to when the when the announced date was going to happen anyway um but yeah odenkirk totally gotten out in front of that <laughs> but it was uh it was not a, a planned occurrence to have that happened were they so gonna do thought- like, a, like a big surprise kind of thing because they kept it under wraps yeah. In terms of mystery, yeah. in terms of the, you know, we talked about earlier, the mystery around this band at times. Well, um, yeah, Greg had uh, posted to his Instagram account and to the band's Facebook page several times over the past uh, few months of shots of him in the studio, of some of his regular Twilight Singers um, band members in the studio, and one or two of John Curley in the studio. And so at that point, people started, there were, there was the chatter, you know, I guess going back as far back as maybe November, October of last year, that is this the wigs? Is this something else? Is he just kind of, will this ever get released? Is this, you know, it could be anything after the Usher South by Southwest thing, right? You know, the gloves were off. It could be anything. And, uh, but the actual timing of the, of the announcement and everything else. Yeah. I think that was kind of done to be, a. Originally and intentionally to just kind of drop a bomb on everybody, and that it's ready. And not only is there a new Wigs album coming, but the the album is done, and we've got a release date, and we've got a video coming out in a couple of weeks. I guess they didn't say that at the time, but that was shortly thereafter. Uh, after that, about a month after that uh, news was dropped, it was announced that Rick McCollum was no longer actually in the band. Um, I've I read, I think it was in Rolling Stone or Spin, one of those two that. It was basically personal reasons on McCollum's part. It wasn't like a a personality issue between him and Greg or, or him and John or anything like that, but it was basically Rick needed to step away from the band for his own personal reasons. And so I heard that <clears throat> on the tour, at one point towards the end, they brought in the other, the Twilight Singers guitar player to quote-unquote kick Rick in the butt or get him straightened out in some way. 
Well, Dave did the whole tour with him. So Dave Rosser, who is an amazing New Orleans uh, bass guitar player, who who has been Greg's sideman for a while now on a lot of projects, um, and a fantastically wonderful, nice human being, um, he did the whole tour. So I don't know at what point Dave was invited to come out and and start with rehearsals, but Dave was there, um, you know, pretty much at the beginning to to help, you know, round out the sound and that sort of thing. But but uh, but yeah, the and the Rolling Stone article that you're referring to uh, that Matt Deal wrote, uh, I think it does a good job of kind of explaining not only the band's point of view of, of why Rick uh, wasn't asked to to come in and do this. And then they also get a quote from Rick, which I thought was fantastic. And um, and I think that it's with any kind of long term relationship, there are going to be times when, you know, things just aren't going to be right. And. I think like a lot of fans, you know, the fanboy in you wants to have those original guys there be- out of some nostalgic reason or, you know, because you want to recapture that magic of when you first heard it. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. So I hope that like everybody at some point, you know, if the band thinks that's the right move for the band to get those guys back in it, to get Rick back in it. And um, but, you know, until then, we're glad to have new Afghan Wicks music. So because of McCollum's departure, that means there is. Uh, quite a few guitar players on the new record. Um, you mentioned Dave Rosser, uh, John, I think it's Skibik. Is that yep. how you're? Skibik? And then Mark McGuire, who's in a Cleveland band called, or was, I think he's left that band, called Emeralds. Yep. Um, and then uh, a variety of uh, other folks on um, either vocals, or I think there's a couple different drummers, which we'll get into. Um, but John Curley, of course, on bass. So this is sort of taking it back to the earliest inclin- uh, 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 aspect of the wigs in the sense that, you know, it was basically John and, and Greg at the very beginning and then John introducing Rick to the four, uh, to the to Greg to start the band. Uh, this is John and, and Greg. So it's almost, I guess you could call this the Afghan singers or the Twilight wigs because it's basically a lot of Twilight singers folks. Um, in the other roles. So yeah, I almost... yeah, yeah, I've heard that a lot. And I think that's kind of fair. You know, it's just kind of when there's been a break like that. Uh, you know, when people talk about the new record, a lot of, you know, I hear a lot of, oh, this song sounds like the Twilight Singers. Well, of course it sounds like the Twilight Singers. That's what he's been doing for the past, you know, however many years. But, you know, for all we know, this is what the wigs may have evolved into on their own naturally. The Those Twilight Singers records, that first one was written shortly after black love you know so all of this was just coming down the pipe and it was just what band name was going to be on it and the afghan wigs made sense i think so let's get into the new record due to the beast out today april 15th let's talk about track one parked outside i have to say when i put on the record oh, i put on the record i got the because uh, i pre-ordered the vinyl which i just received as we were recording this and it's uh, glorious um when i heard that drum beat for parked outside i was like this is what i was expecting not 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 in the sense that like this is predictable but like this sort of like <laughs> it sounds like the wigs if the wigs were playing in a strip club like it has this <laughs> like stomp and this like dirtiness to it um the bass is like incredibly loud uh, um, when that when it comes in on those those hits, uh, that dun, dun part, but this sounds well, like what would the natural evolution of what would have come off of like the, the last Wigs record for me, which is bizarre because they're 16 years apart. 
Well, it is the stereotypical strip tease beat. The yeah. Dun, <laughs> dun, 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 dun. I mean, it's the, you know, on a TV sitcom, if somebody's going to do a strip tease, this is what you put on in terms of a drum beat. Right. And I, and I like, you know, if there's anything that Greg Dooley is, it's, a, it's he's self-aware of as a songwriter and um, of pop culture and of, you know, throwing in, you know, Diddy lyrics or Nas or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the line where he sings, um, if they've seen them all, seen it all, show them something new. Um, I feel like, okay, like that's that's what you would write on the first song of your new record that's out after 16 years of, you know, a new of your band being dormant. It leads it to an, kind of an interesting chorus because it has this like sort of loud and, and, and propulsive for the stripper beat, uh, as we refer to it, uh, verse. But then the chorus is much has a much more space to it. Um, there's not a lot of lyrics to the chorus, which uh, kind of threw me a little bit the first time I heard it. Uh, I couldn't even quite make out what he was saying. I don't know what was your guys' reaction to that. Well, I think it's just kind of for this song. For me, this song was really um, kind of like if you took something hot, and for me, that was that first Wigs record that again didn't have that kind of beginning and end cohesiveness. After what I'd come to expect from Gentleman in Black Love, there were those kind of bookend pieces in the same way, opening up with a big bombastic number. But it was really like you know something hot mixed with uh, there's a Twilight Singers called song called I'm Ready that does have mm-hmm. that kind of more simple chorus. Um, but the production on this is really what just made me sit up straight when I heard it because it is produced in such a way that is, I feel really modern in that the levels and the space that is in the song really allows it to breathe. You hear it so well. And this is you know the first Wigs record I bought that wasn't also available on cassette, you know, uh, and I think that that makes <laughs> a, a huge difference in where we've come from. But that kind of transgression and from to the real swagger to having the more emotional tilt to that chorus is is what Greg does. Yeah, I think um, I was drawn in by the by the drum sound for sure. You know, at least initially, um, you know, the big, really saturated, compressed um, beat. You know, it, it's pretty bombastic to to begin the record out. You know, I, I I guess it starts to though for me reveal some of the flaws that I see through this record that you guys are going to hear a lot about. <laughs> so one is the fact that um, while it sounds like you know dr- real drums, um, as you listen to it, it sort of becomes obvious that it's not a real drummer, um, whether it's sampled or looped or drum machine or whatever. Um, the beat never changes. There's no crash cymbals. Like it becomes pretty obvious that like unlike most like all the other wig stuff this is not greg maybe saying hey drummer dude i got an idea for a beat why don't you do something like this and then that guy interpreting that and performing it this is you know greg in the studio manufacturing um the exact drum beat he wants using whatever technology he has available much like the, the uh twilight singer stuff so in a way you know I, there's parts of it that i really like it's probably one of my the better songs on the record. Um, but there's that aspect to it that it just at the end of the day, what that means is it, it comes across a little bit lifeless for me. And then uh, it's a little like overly simple. So I think the comparison to something hot is great. I think it is in a lot of ways, 
reminiscent of that, at least at, at first take. But then that song has some complexity to it and some performances going on that I think elevate it that this song kind of just doesn't have. It's like the chorus is almost the same part and they just add some some extra keyboards and stuff to make it feel like a chorus and like four more guitars. It doesn't quite have the songwriting, I don't know, that I would come to expect from a wig song. That's interesting. That silence. It's okay. <laughs> you're allowed to. Uh, you're allowed to be. Uh, you know, contrary. This is why I had to drink three beers before we started. That. <laughs> okay. I am totally respectful of your <laughs> of the song. Well, then, Jay, I'm interested in what you have to say about the second song. Uh, I think it's Matamoros. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce that, but um, because this to me is where I, I get what you're saying. This first song is pretty simple. This song to me, it, it's it's where the album sort of takes off and, and shows it shows the combination of Dooley's time with the twilight singers and really developing, I think as a more, I guess, complex songwriter and, but also his ability to like craft a really tight song in two and a half minutes. It's built around this like dirty sort of funk guitar part that reminds me of like a 70s like cop movie or something like that um with this really tight drum beat uh and and drum and and bass line going along with it but then it has this like really big sort of typical i guess late era wigs chorus going along with it and it has even the vocal uh and the and the lyrics remind me a lot of like black love era um wigs uh, but with the there's a production aspect of it that reminds me a lot of the Twilight Singers. I'm thinking of when they go to so there's like a, a opening verse and then they have a, a a bit of a bridge, not really a bridge, but just like a break in there with a, a guitar lead. But there's like these bass drops that are going on. I don't know if it's keyboard or if, or if uh, John Curley's doing it. And then after the uh, chorus they do the same thing but then they go to a second part that has strings which reminds me a lot of like the powder burns era twilight singers curious of what you guys thought of this song Lee let me start with you uh yeah I felt uh, in, in some ways the same that this was part of where the record took off because I, I'd like I'm ready on uh, on powder burns there's a that kind of 
the song is what it is and it kind of does stand alone and then after that the album starts to evolve and, and go different places and for me you know i had the chance to get this um a little bit early and put it in my car and this record is one of those that's just meant to be in a really good car stereo as loud as possible and this song took me completely by surprise with those weird like the bass drops that you mentioned that kind of thing that you'd almost hear in a in uh, some sort of uh, you know electronic dance music song or something like that interspersed with these different rhythms that we haven't heard from them before and you've got the the lyricism that is you know again that confrontational uh, danceable kind of interesting thing uh, that greg does lyrically in that song but it's it does not sound like any other wig song you've ever heard before that's for sure and I think that it's it, it could definitely be polarizing for a lot of people, but I heard it and just immediately kind of clicked with it. And I do feel that this is the point where the record kind of does take a little bit of a turn. And you know, gosh, we'll get to the next song. That's a completely other right turn. So it's it's really interesting with the sequencing of these tracks. I would have thought that this song, you know, maybe would have gone further back in the track listing to kind of divert before you get to the kind of closing coda. But as the second track, it, it does something completely different, which I like a lot. Jay, tell us why you didn't like this song. This is where the, the record died for me. <laughs> At the second song. <laughs> it did. It did. The first song, it's sort of like it, <clears throat> there was parts about it that I liked and it gave me hope. And then when I heard this song, it all died. And here's why. The thing that's what made for me with, that's made the wigs brilliant is their interpretation of R&B, meaning, you know, at the end of the day, they were conscious that they're a bunch of white kids, you know, that really loved R&B music and they interpret it in a way that was, that made sense to, you know, their truth, like what their upbringing was, what kind of instruments they played, how they expressed themselves. This sounds, it, it takes the appreciation of R&B from an inspiration into an, a, a really embarrassing impression. So to me, this sounds like Dooley trying to be Nelly or Usher instead of saying, wow, I listened to this Nelly or Usher song and it really made me think about all these different cool ideas. Let me go to my band and like see if we can do some stuff with this. And you basically give those ideas to a guy who comes from maybe a rock background and say, hey, I got this idea for a drum beat or I got this idea for a guitar part. What would you want that? Let's play this out as a band. And then you kind of come into what you have on things like Gentlemen and some of the early wig stuff where it's you can hear it at the heart of what they do, but it's a honest interpretation and an honest, you know, they're they're inspired by it. They're not trying to mime it or mimic it and to me the song is him trying to mimic that and it's just it's just weird it's just you know i think if i if i wasn't aware i guess for me a lot of this is going to come down to if the name the afghan wigs wasn't on this i probably would feel a little bit different about it so if this was a twilight singers record i'd probably be a few songs in thinking okay this is the best twilight singers record since the the first one you know, and I might be able to appreciate it from that standpoint, but I'm just left with the history of this band and what they mean in terms of, you know, what they did with music, you know, what they interpreted and what they expressed and trying to align that with what I'm seeing now. And, you know, a lot of my impressions of this record are being those two things being really conflicted. Huh? <laughs> it's going to get better guys. <laughs> okay. 
Well, let's go to track three, It Kills, which to me falls into the sort of classic Dooley ballad um, in terms of uh, Twilight Singers especially. Um, I think it has a killer sort of repeated line that when I read the title, It Kills, I was like, hmm, I wonder how that, what's, how's that going to be worked into the song? Um, when he says, it kills to watch you love another, that's, I just was like, that is a brilliant use of that phrase. It's starts out, I guess you'd say, as a, as a sort of a ballad, and then it moves in, it, it, it builds, and it has this sort of like soulful middle bridge part. Um, I'm not sure who's doing that. If it's, I know that, um, Van Susan Hunt. Marshall, I'm sure. Is it Susan? Was she on this record? Uh, no, that's Van Hunt. Yeah, who's doing the the really high kind of soul work? Yeah. So it, it, it in that respect, it reminded me a lot of like the mid part of the 1965 record, John the Baptist and Cite Soleil and and those tracks um, that are a little bit more expansive and a little bit more embracing of that sort of New Orleans vibe that that record has but i thought you know at at this point i was like wow this so this record has really shown a lot of different flavors already um what was your guys's take on it kills jay i'm gonna start with you this time i'll keep it short i i like i love the piano the piano intro um it's it, it it feels like a little bit like black love to me but when it gets to the chorus again for me it screams you know that this album is really missing Rick McCollum uh, because you know, and I hear this a lot on this record, they have to resort to adding in all of this other sampled instruments and strings and five guitar parts to do things that I think he would just do when he was, you know, at his best. So, you know, whether it be with slide or just some like really strange ambient guitar sound or, an, uh, you know, an alternating riff or whatever, like, you listen to Black Love, which the song, you know, starts to remind me a little bit of, you know, they were able to fill that out with pretty much four guys and minimal, you know, use of other stuff. Not to say there's not organ on that and other things, but I just hear a lot of other compensating for the fact that he's not on this record when I when I hear this song. Yeah, and this then is the, definitely the, more lush than than a lot of the the Black Love era stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. And the and the breakdown, just real quick on that. I agree. It, it, you know, obviously when you hear that soul singer thing, it reminds me of 1965, but then it goes so far to the point where it turns into a Prince song, which I know he loves Prince and that's awesome. And I know that because I've seen him live and they do little Ray Corvette and whatever, but never on a record have I, has it been so like obvious to me, you know, that he likes Prince. And when he gets into the, the, by the end of that breakdown, he's singing in falsetto and it's just like, there's like a moment in there like, Oh my God, this could be a Prince song. Which, I don't know. I just like when he's more veiled about those types of influences. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, calling it a Prince song would be a pretty big compliment for most people. To, but I, I see what, you, what you're what you saying with that song in the, in the last one about the kind of how, you know, perhaps you're seeing the reinterpretation of different pieces. Um, I, I think that there is this sort of um, signature piece that you hear on a lot of uh, Greg's ballads over the last few years with the use of the kind of simple solo piano note runs. And I don't know if that's a case of these songs were originally written on the piano and kind of the melodies are worked out that way. And 
and it's a nice thread to have run through so many of these songs but here it, it really starts with a that super sparse arrangement and does go to this very big orchestration uh, towards the end of it and I'm a fan of, of the Van Hunt stuff he does on this I think it it is over the top but I think it's to back up what is going on in the song um, I definitely didn't see it as being um, an additional filler piece I think it's just kind of um, a way to expand the song with a different voice that has different talents or skills um, to go along with it. And I think it is interesting that it's another man's voice uh, as well. I, f- I feel like that works really well in this instance uh, and kind of, you know, puts that impact back on the lyrics and that, that point of view that the song has. But one of the things that really strikes me about this record and on this song you you start to hear maybe more than some of the previous ones and and even more on the next one is how high greg's vocals are in the mix and how confidently he's singing and the range at which he's singing out on this record is really unprecedented in the rest of of his output as a vocalist and i think that's really welcome to see somebody at this point in their career you know, kind of taking full reign of that and being willing to push the voice places it hasn't gone before. I think that's a a really cool testament in this record. Well, that's a good segue into the track four, Algiers, uh, which is the first single that was released for this record with a a video to accompany it. bit of a a twist on what I guess what you we know of the wigs in that the drum beat is classic sort of Motown uh, Supremes which uh, is not far off from you know what the wigs were covering um, back in you know Uptown Avondale era um, but this has this sort of uh, I don't know spaghetti western uh vibe to the video that works well with it which I I would not have placed a spaghetti western with a Motown song so I, you know interesting use of images to go along with the track but as as a standalone of just a track without the um, without the beat 
I feel like the song sort of kicks in once where it really becomes what it is once they drop out of that sort of that Motown beat and the song actually fully kicks in because this is a really this is a bit of a departure as far as his vocals go which you mentioned um he's even like his the melody that he's singing is is a bit of a departure he's singing high throughout a lot of the song the phrasing is different than a lot of and i think it's basically on the structure of the song um it's a bit more of a of a strummy acoustic song which you don't get that a lot in the Wigs catalog or in even the Twilight Singers catalog. It's a departure in, in terms of either of those sorts of songwriting styles. Particular thing that I liked about this track is the guitar solo, which is really dirty and nasty and fairly simple, but I think works really well on this track. I'm not going to say this is like my favorite song on the record. Um, it's probably in the latter half in terms of them, but I thought when I first heard it, I was like, oh, that's going to be a song that I skip, but it turns out that it's not a song that I skip. I do actually enjoy going back into this song. So uh, what do you guys think about Algiers? Lee, I'll start with you. Yeah, um, same here. A lot of that reaction was the same that I had. Um, I was very, very surprised to hear it as kind of the initial, the teaser track, I guess you would call it at this point, you know, before the record's out and, and kind of your first glimpse of what, you know, this Mach 3 Afghan wigs kind of lineup was going to sound like. And... Um, you know, not saying that it's a, a genre song or anything like that, but it is a spaghetti Western is, is how I've seen it described. And it, it's hard to come up with the, another set of words, but I like how you brought up the fact that that beat, uh, that initial beat is that kind of sixties girl group kind of, uh, beat that so many of those songs have, but then putting the, the extra extra instrumentation on it. And then the, the vocal line that is so distinctly different, uh, for the wigs into it as well. And I thought, well, this is really interesting as a standalone piece, um, but I, I don't know how much I'm going to like it as a song, you know, as a as a real piece of the record of this record, not knowing what this record was going to sound like at the time. And But now hearing it in context, it provides this really interesting bridge uh, between It Kills and the next track. And the way that these songs work with each other, um, Dooley just recently said in an interview, the most of the songs have pairs on the record. They have compliments. So, you know, they, they kind of will piece together in, in two part sections in a lot of ways. And, and for me, when I first heard this, I thought there was no way that the song was going to meld with everything else. But now I think that there's uh, a little bit more cohesiveness to it than I was giving it credit for, for sure. But it's, it's very different, you know, for people who were coming to the wigs for the first time, maybe in hearing this, uh, they'd have no idea this was the same band that had put out those records in the mid nineties for sure. Jay. Yeah, I was listening to, or I was watching True Detective at the time this song came out. So the first thing I thought of was the theme song to that movie or that show. You know, it's very, very similar. Um, you know, a Southern, American Southern folk music, you know, kind of a country Western, spaghetti Western. Um, I think there's a Mexican influence a little bit on this record. I guess if there's a theme, time and place, I would say there's like a, there's the some references and just some you know, like this song there's some some sonically some things going on that were reminiscent of that when i heard it i hated it <laughs> i'm not gonna lie to you in terms of it just was so disappointing to me that that you know that an afghan wig song would sound like this because it's just um but now that i listen to the whole record it's actually my i think it's the best song i think it, from a songwriting standpoint um i think it's the uh, 
the, the, the best written song. I think it's sonically the best sounding song. I think vocally, um, it's interesting because I totally agree at least what Lee's saying. I, what I think what Tim mentioned too, the phrasing is so different from him. He is going it vocally. If there's one thing good about this record is that vocally he's going to places he's never gone before. And I love that. Um, but what's made that really cool about, you know, in terms of his story and his persona is that you know, he at times has this almost like chauvinistic kind of, you know, take on uh, uh, lyrics and he'll play with that back and forth. And that's always been part of his personality. You know, I think there's, um, but, and, and there's sort of a, a cockier arrogance as well, you know, to him lyrically, but he's so vulnerable as a singer and that's what makes it brilliant. So, you know, he may say things where you're like kind of off-putting, but he's doing it in a way where you're like, wow, this guy is really, he really means it. Cause I can hear like, I can hear the flaws in his voice and I can hear that, you know, he's not like, you know, vocally from a, from a, you know, talent standpoint, the greatest singer that's ever existed, but it all works beautifully because of the contrast there. I think what's problematic for me in this song is that I'm pretty sure at two, at two minutes and 30 seconds that he's pitch correcting his falsetto. And to me, that's blasphemy. Like that is, I would rather hear him put an off key, you know, and miss a note on a, on a record. I would, that would mean so much more to me than hearing him fix it. Cause to me, that's completely against not only this persona, but the point of the band, like the, the, the beauty of this band to me has always been about the, 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 the thing with this, there's, there's this like contrast between um, the, the Rick's guitar and his vocal and like, they're at times clashing and just almost off, just borderline almost off key, but then they come back into something really tight and there's sort of that push and pull. And if he's getting it, and I, and I don't know for sure that he pitch corrected it, but man, it's, it sounds like it is to me. And again, that's just one of those things that like for this band, like you just cannot do it. Just, it spoils the, what they're about to me. Really? You think so? Because there's so many, ass- so many parts of the record where he's clearly not like his vocal is, no i know but go to 230 go to 230 and listen to that falsetto and like you can hear like it goes into this weird like chirpy kind of thing where man it sounds like somebody went in and fixed it Hmm. there's definitely um yeah i was listening to that too because i i had I, i had kind of the same initial reaction and i don't know one way or the other how it was done but but the effects on the voice on this, I mean, there's definitely a digital delay that's pretty prominent, prominent in it, and there's more reverb, perhaps, than a lot of the other record, but still super high in the mix. And, and I know that, you know, there have been other records that have been affected where the vocals have just been much more intermelded with everything else to kind of subdue them. But, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but there's, there's definitely, obviously, effects on the voice, but I don't, I don't know if he actually uh, did any correction on it. It's a track I mean, five. I appreci- appreciate oh, him going to new places, but what's worked for me in the past has been he goes to new places and he can, he can almost, and especially live, like go to new places and just completely burn out. But the way he does it, you don't care. You're like, that was awesome. You know? So if you, if you go to a new place and then all of a sudden you're like, well, I'm going to fix it. So it sounds like I really pulled it off. That's just so, so anyway, maybe he didn't and I'm totally reading into it, but I thought it was worth bringing up. I, I thought it was like what Lee mentioned that, just that there's delay and reverb and his vocal is much more affected just by studio effects rather than they tried to fix it. I didn't really pick up on it. It's like a fix issue, but maybe I'm naive. So who knows? 
Um, track five, Lost in the Woods. Interesting track in that I was reading, I think probably the same thing you read, Lee, about the pairs and stuff like that, that this was this was a song that was basically two parts that existed separately and then sort of naturally got combined. Reminds me of that two-note piano part that's going on. Um, reminds me of some of the slower stuff off of uh, Black Love. It reminds me of like uh, Night by Candlelight, uh, that sort of... I think that's you know that's sort of like a picked guitar part um, with some string accompaniment. Uh, has sort of this ominous sort of uh, feel to it in the same way that that song does. But then it opens up into like this big chorus, almost has this like jaunty feel to it. One of the longer songs on the record, it works for me in parts. It doesn't necessarily work for me in the overall, but I I do like the the chorus part of this song. And I'm curious what you guys have to say uh, about Lost in the Woods. I think the chorus, um, well, to me, this song takes me back to 1965. Like, if you told me that this was a leftover, at least a verse part was leftover from those sessions or that writing area, I would totally believe you because it has a little bit of like a jazzy piano player kind of sense to the melody. And I could almost hear him, you know, the way he drops a little bit of French or Cajun in the in 1965 you know it almost sounds like he could go into that in the song to me uh, just to be brief with this one I think the jauntiness of the chorus again is because of the lack of Rick McCollum so where Rick would come in with like some soaring just crazy slide part that would like elevate the song instead they use like I don't know if it's harpsichord or what's going on there but it's some kind of picked uh, picking part that turns it into almost like this yeah, I mean, jaunty is a great example, like great word. Instead of it being the soaring opening thing, it turns into this like kind of an odd plucky kind of, you know, it's just a totally different mood. Um, and that's not to say that this is uh, one of the better songs on the record, I think, as well. And that's not to say it's not successful. It just makes me, you know, in my head think, boy, if this was just Rick was in the band, what would this sound like? And I think it would sound darker. I think it would sound more dramatic and more cinematic than it, than it does on this, this interpretation. I think lyrically, this is probably one of the darkest songs on the record. Maybe the, I mean, I think this is one that for me is that tenseness that a lot of black love has, um, that you got the, the dynamic in a relationship or that outside perspective on a relationship that gets really, really kind of twisted and, and kind of ugly in a way in, in terms of, of how it's put together. And I think that how it opens up to that chorus is, is very different and it's a different way perhaps than they would have handled it in the past. But I feel that it does provide this counterpoint and release to that tenseness that builds throughout and and how how the the characters talk to each other or talk about each other and then kind of it's kind of it's nice i mean i kind of feel like this might be one of those songs that ends up being a real standout live on this tour uh kind of like how candy cane crawl did for Mm -hmm. one of the previous twilight singers records a chance for for Greg to maybe to, to ham it up a little bit into that chorus part and, and kind of, you know, not have a guitar, or be at the piano and just hold the mic and, and work the crowd a little bit and then kind of get back down into the nitty gritty of some of the other parts of this because it's 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 really a different take for them on how to put together this kind of 
darker lyrical song. Now there's an interesting juxtaposition with this being a, a longer and more, um, uh, I even mentioned darker song. Transitioning this into track six, the lottery, which starts out with, I don't know, one of the most Afghan wig friendly or, or familiar guitar riffs. There's a certain way that Greg plays guitar, and I don't know where he learned it, but he plays a lot of like, and Jay, maybe you can help me out with describing how Greg Dooley plays guitar, because um, you've played guitar more extensively than I have. But he tends to play, and I'm talking about the song Lottery, um, he tends to play like these weird like open note things, um, and or chords that aren't necessarily like normal chords. Uh, they're based around, I'm thinking of like Honky's Ladder as a good example. It starts out with like a basic like E chord, but then he throws in these like weird variations that are still basically an E chord, but he's kind of doing these like oddball fingerings. The lottery sort of gets into that same realm. The interesting aspect of this song is I to- you, you totally expect the chorus to hit when it hits, but it hits in a way that's completely different than I, I think you've heard most Afghan Wigs or Twilight Singers before. Because it has like this sort of epic aspect to it with almost like this edge U2 guitar part with this delayed guitar part that's going on. It sounds like it could have been off of a, a U2 record. Um, and then his vocal over top of it is much more direct than anything else on the record, really, in terms of like a blatant chorus. What, I was curious what you guys thought in terms of this being sort of a throwback, but then also a a real divergence from earlier Afghan wig stuff. Uh, I, I, this is my least favorite song on the record for so many reasons. I guess the, and I mentioned this to Tim earlier before we recorded this, maybe a week ago, this, the thing that came to mind is um, Chinese democracy. <laughs> You're going to be like, what wow. is this guy talking about? <laughs> Here's what I'm talking about. This sounds like there are so many like things dropped on this song that have nothing to do with the rest of the song. That are just like, like that, what you're saying, Tim, in that chorus, like where that delay guitar comes in. It just sounds so like session based, not in the room, not considered as part of the song. Just like finding some, like, you know, with Chinese Democracy, where it was like, oh, I like this guitar player. I'm just going to go get them and have them throw a solo on the song. And it has nothing to do with anything. You know, it's just like layer upon layer upon layer that just have no reference to one another and like obviously are not organically created together. They're just pieces and parts assembled. Um, To me, the song screams of that from the intro of like the, you know, the, the rhythm bed of like that hi hat, like that chips chasing through the whole song that never gets taken out to that delay part in the chorus to um, the guitar solo to uh, the added synth that's in it, you know, just to, uh, to wrap up my, my point on this is that, you know, you mentioned his guitar playing where he, he does choose or at least phrase his chords in really interesting ways where you hear all this dissonance. And usually the, one of the things that made the band really cool is that Rick would pull up on that dissonance. So those weird notes that, that Greg would play on guitar, he would kind of accent those. He would find those odd, almost like conflicting you know, notes that are in those chords that Greg would play and they would sort of turn them into something that made sense. On a song like this, you don't even hear it because there's so many layers of other shit that like, 
I don't even know it. By the time the chorus comes, I don't even know if Greg's playing guitar anymore. There's like eight synths and a delay and a, you know, six other guitar parts and strings. And you're like, okay. I mean, again, as a Twilight Singer song, I probably would think about it completely different. But in the context of this band, I'm just scratching my head. So this is a weird time to say this is probably my favorite song on the record. Right? <laughs> Wow. This is going to be our greatest episode ever. <laughs> and uh, for me, this is the one that, I don't know, kind of pulls a, a lot of what I really like about the Wig songs and a lot of what I really like about the Twilight Singer songs and puts them together. And I'm not going to say that they always meld perfectly well in this, but I feel like with this song, I'm getting what I want from both of those bands in a way in one song. It's the return of that jangle, that open string, you know, kind of that chord phrasing that Greg does. And, you know, a lot of songs, it's just a, an E minor where he's really just playing, you know, two or three open strings. But it's the way he plays them and the way he puts it together that you get that shuffle from that I, I so associate with so much of that Afghan Wigs material. And I think for this one, too, that that scope of the chorus is going to lend itself to be interesting live. I did get that same U2 kind of vibe from it. Yeah, but I think this may be the one that, you know, becomes a, a show staple for the next 10 years if they're still playing, that this may be one of those songs that they keep playing and keep pulling out because I think it does have so many of those aspects that um, maybe not Jay, but some other people might be looking for in, 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 a, in, a, in this song, in, that, in this band, this version of this band to do. Um, so I was, for me, this was the one that I was kind of surprised was not the teaser track. I mean, this makes sense as a, a proper single. You know, when I was listening to it for the first time, I thought, well, this is the one. This is the one they'll put out front. Interesting. I do find the, just the lyrical choice of him singing the lottery it just still sort of like it feels weird to me just because that word i don't think i've ever heard the word lottery in a rock song before well it made i originally thought about that short story you know that i'm sure you guys probably had to read in high school too about the town where they choose some kid to die you know there's like the lottery to pick which one has to die to be the sacrifice and so that's what originally what I thought of when I when I heard it. And then you like look through the lyrics. You're like, well, yeah, that that could very well be what the impetus was lyrically or who knows? It could have been anything else. But but yeah, I, I think if you're thinking about Powerball, that is kind of kind of weird. to, <laughs> to interject The Powerball. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a little different. <laughs> um, track seven, uh, Can Rova. For me, this is the most blatantly Twilight Singer song on the record um, in terms of the way it's structured in terms of the sonics of this record um, and the end of this song it's the greatest I think departure from any sort of sound of the Afghan wigs with this sort of acoustic and then there's like this clean sort of guitar part that's going on which doesn't sound like anything off of a wigs record that I can think of um, I like the way that the song builds and grows into this much more uh, epic uh, track and I think that that's one of the things I've uh, appreciated about this record and, and what I appreciated about Dooley's, I mentioned this being the most Twilight Singer sounding song what th- I think he really became good at with the Twilight Singers is cr- creating these crescendos um, you mentioned Candy Cane Crawl that's one particular song where I think it has this great crescendo to it and I think that that sort of started with um, the last track on Black Love, 
faded. Um, I don't. I don't think that there's a song that crescendos in such an epic way uh, that prior to to faded. I think you know they did some songs where they did some builds and stuff like that, but in terms of like creating this like epic build up and of tension and then release, faded is really where you get that, and it doesn't really happen on 1965. It's just not uh, the really the record for it, but. There's throughout the Twilight Singers uh, catalog and then in, in, in this record, with specifically with this song and another one we'll get to, um, I think it shows off that, that development of that skill where, it, you know, it's easy to just keep layering, as Jay mentioned, instruments on top of each other, but to actually create this sort of like tension within the lyrics and the songwriting and the delivery and the melody and all that sort of stuff, it, it really, it's, it's a lot of, you know, elements coming together and i think that this track well i'm i'm can't wait to hear what jay has to say about it because i'm i'm <laughs> I'm, I'm i would take bets on which side he's going to come down on i think it's a really interesting track i don't necessarily it's not necessarily my favorite track on the record but i think it's interesting it has a lot of cool aspects to it so lee what do you think well i mean this is the token car song on the record right i mean this is the one the the car has been a really crucial metaphor i think for greg and in this later the second chapter of his songwriting career that we we've been in through those twilight singers records and it was Mm -hmm. nice to see that part of it uh, make a reappearance and i I think too with this song like you said it's it's very different than maybe what a lot of people would expect from an afghan wigs record and you know i think that this is a record where the whole idea was to to put it all on the table, to do what they want to do right now, to not try to, you know, make those same sounds, to make those same songs all over again, and to get on to, to vinyl what they really feel is their current, you know, muse and inspiration, and to, to make the biggest scope sonic record that the Afghan Wigs in 2014 are, are going to release. And, and this song plays into that. For me, this song kind of doesn't exist without Royal Cream, the next song. The way that they bridge together, you know, this is another one of those instances of songs that are pairs. And if you look at Royal Cream being kind of a coda to Canrova, I really like what they're doing with this tail section of the of the album because this is, for Wigs records, this part of the record is traditionally your wind down. It's, you know, we've, we've had some big pieces. We've had a middle set piece. Uh, and at this point, we're kind of, going back down the hill to work into your grand finale and and i feel it it does kind of serve that piece of it but royal royal cream kind of flips the script a little bit so i'll defer to jay for his take (laughs) uh you know i don't have a problem with this song until we get to the to the end where the um the drum the bass drum machine comes in and then i just it i just groan this is just so like i don't know not creative um it's like okay well there's you know we got to build up the song here what can we do and you you know the the most obvious choice is to just do the mm, 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 and that's what they do they just play like a clearly you know drum machine kick drum and just play that through with you know a ton more sense I, I think the first part of the song is a lot more interesting to me the the atmosphere vocal and like what he's doing vocally and it, um the mood it creates and I'm, I'm sort of bought in bought in through most of that until we get to the end and then 
I just once again, I'm I'm missing the band. I'm missing the band aspect of when they would do those crescendos. Just how big and how amazing they would feel, you know. And I and I've gone back and forth. Listen, you know, going back and forth between this and and something like Black Love, where they do that, and it's just there's no comparison. There's just this sounds like um, it sounds like a bedroom interpretation of the Afghan wigs. It sounds like one person saying, "I want to make an Afghan." It sounds like Tim, like. Over a weekend, saying, "Hey, I'm going to make a record that sounds like the Afghan Wigs, but I've only got GarageBand and a keyboard and limited, you know, things to do that." And it just screams of that. Like it's an it's an impression of what an Afghan Wigs record would sound like. Uh, to is me, it unfair is a, at this point to kind of compare the band now to the band then? I feel like if they would have continued to put out records, like if we renamed all the Twilight Singers records as to be Afghan Wigs records. You know, it would be completely a completely different conversation. Yes. Yeah. It is. It's a it's a very difficult it's a very difficult thing. And I don't feel like this about a lot of bands. You know, a lot of bands yeah. I would be very forgiving of sort of later eras of the band where they reinvent themselves with new members and do different things. But I think it's because the Afghan or I'm sorry, because the Twilight Singers existed. And it just feels like the only reason the word the Afghan wigs is on this record is for marketing purposes. It's not for anything to do with what that band was about and what that band stood for. It feels to me that Greg thought, which as a business decision, I totally respect and somebody who's trying to make money doing this thought, you know what? If I just put the name, the Afghan wigs on my toilet singers records, I would sell a shitload more of them. And I would get a deal with sub pop and people would come out to the shows way more than they do now. What am I doing? Why don't I just do that? And I feel like when I listen to this record, that's what's that's what happened. And I have problems with that because I, that band means so much to me and that name means so much to me that just thinking about that, I don't know. That's just, I, I, I you know, it just hits me the wrong way. There's an integrity part of it that, that I'm struggling with. Uh, I don't, I don't know how much more, this isn't like, trying to think of this isn't the pixies you know what i mean like they don't have that i don't think they have that same sort of like legendary cachet and turn and and bringing them back is like jesus has re-entered the building for, for all of the influence that you know the wigs have had it's been fairly you know they they had a nice career but it wasn't like they were touted as the reason why kurt cobain picked up a guitar you know, well, no, but, that, but I guarantee you they sold a hell of a lot more tickets to the Afghan Wigs tour than he was selling to the Twilight Singers tour. And the Twilight Singers were not on Sub Pop. You know, at the end of the day, like, the dude's trying to make, a, you know, he's trying to earn a living. And I totally respect that, and I get what he's doing. But, you know, to review the record, I'm just, you know, just the way I see it. It's, you know, it's not, it's his best best attempt to do a Wigs record without... Rick McCall on with the, what he has available to him. That doesn't make it a Wigs record to me. That's the problem for me. It's just, you know, I'm not saying that, yeah, that they're Nirvana for God's sakes, I'm, but I am saying that 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 name sells a hell of a lot more tickets than the Twilight Singers does. Maybe. I don't, I don't have any facts to back that up, but... <laughs> Let's go to Portland. <laughs> and and in all fairness, the last Twilight Singers record did come out on Sub Pop. Oh, did it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, there you go. And it's did the Gutter Twins record. Anyway, track eight. Uh, you you guys mentioned what your favorite songs were. Lee, I think you said the lottery. Jay, you said Algiers. 
Trek 8 Royal Cream. This is my favorite song on the record. is the performance i think the drums are on fire on this record it's it's a different drummer it's uh, the drummer from the greenhorns plays on this uh track uh i think the guitar part uh, the guitars throughout the record or, or throughout this song um really take me back to classic era afghan wigs both at the beginning that jangly sort of greg dooley guitar part and then when you get to the breakdown um, there's a there's like these big sort of breakdown that happens where the band's all hitting at the same time, and then there's this like quieter breakdown, which you can hear the guitar sort of like falling in and out of tune based on what notes he's hitting, which is a pretty ballsy thing to do. But it's you know that's what you would hurt would have heard on like Gentleman or um, Black Love where the guitar isn't necessarily perfectly. Um, you know, pitched or whatever in terms of every single note being absolutely perfect. You know, you can hear where the squeaks and you can hear the the fingering being off a little bit where it's just some notes are muted when they maybe they shouldn't be. And um, I just think that this song just has like an energy to it that really works um, more. So it sounds a little more ragged, which is what I think makes it sound so good. Whereas some of the other parts of the record, the, the, rec- the playing is pretty perfect whereas this just sounds to me like more of a band you know i think it's the only song that an actual drummer plays on the whole song or at least the most of it it's i think it's the only song on the record that features a drum fill to be honest to go through the whole record think about it you know the and that's one of the best moments of the song is um you know the drum fill that's in the in in the the well there that matters like you're actually hearing no being play the drums like not not you know, cut up and perfected. It's a, you know, a real person well, playing. Here's the thing. So that, but that's not necessarily like if you take a song like um, crazy, that's a real drummer, but it's chopped up. And it's the same thing with parked outside. That's a real, that's Greg Dooley playing the drums. It's just, he took a part and spliced it and repeated it over and over again. So 
I think there's a difference between like a keyboard drum part or a you know a, something created on a computer versus I play this part, I like the way that this part sounds, so I'm gonna take that part and loop it and create the drum beat out of it. There's yes, there are better ways to do that than others. I think in the the ones you mentioned, they did it in a way that was better. But I mean, to get back to the song, yeah, I agree. It doesn't have a lot more energy than the rest of the record, and I think it has to do with the drum performance. Lee, your For take me, on the song, Cream. yeah, yeah, we get a lot of that guitar jangle back on this um, that you guys touched on that I really like, and I feel like it can be signature wigs. Um, those muted strings, the the ambiance of of hearing players in a room, you know, really kind of working on something, uh, and and finding the sweet spot on it, and kind of getting into a little bit of a groove and, and hanging on to those different pieces that work, which I like. I like the bass in the song a lot. I've, I feel like John does a great job in this song. The bass work, by and large, on this record isn't what I kind of consider to be that signature work that John Curley has done on, on other records where the bass is uh, having these lines up and down that form a second melody in a lot of those songs, especially on Gentlemen. There's a lot of that on Gentlemen. Um, but here, it's just so solid. It's higher in the mix. I do get the feeling that this is much more of a, a band song when you listen to it, that everybody has their part and, and they're all just kind of you know working it out together, uh, which, which I love. I love that in the song. And this pairs well um, with track nine, I Am Fire. It's basically, it's, it's uh, what I think of as like two parts of the same song. It, that ending drum part leads right into the next track. It reminds me of like, say, on the first Twilight Singers record of like love and anime going one into the other. Um, but it's a completely other like take on this sort of rhythm. Sounds like it could have been a, a Twilight Singers song um, in that it's completely built around the rhythm. Some acoustic guitar actually reminds me a lot of that first Twilight Singers record with like anime and the the looped drum part sounds like a you know a completely studio built song but um, I like the way that it's short and compact and keeps this like sort of I don't know ominous kind of tone to it throughout um, and his he gets real like uh, at towards the end of the song he starts screaming and gets the the vocal actually steps back. It's pretty up front at the beginning, but it's like he stepped away from the microphone to do the really loud yelling at the end, which I like. He almost sounds like he's just like at the end of it, like the vocal just like sort of gives up and he's just sort of like walks away from the mic, which sounds cool. Um, I don't know if that's what's really going on or, or if they just sort of added a bunch of reverb to get that effect. What was your guys, what would you guys think about I Am Fire, Jay? I'll keep it short. Uh, it's obvious that he was a fan of Gwen Stefani's Hollaback Girl because he used the drum beat from it. <laughs> he didn't interpret it. He actually just went ahead and used it. At least the exact sounds from it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> for me, that, that beat in this song is all about that rhythm for me. That And it reminds me of, you know, kind of, it, it does, and I did not think of Hollaback Girl at all, but for me, it kind of reminded me of that, high school desk when you kind of would beat out a rhythm on a desk, you know, kind of going between the palm of your hand and your knuckle. Um, and there's that real kind of primal tribal bit to that, which I'm sure worked its way into band music and, and everything else. But there's that, that propulsiveness to it from that beat. And the way the vocals are handed, handled is pretty interesting. There's a lot of doubling in this that are 
you know, really closely together with little divergences here and there that I, I think is interesting. Again, just another technique, another tool they're bringing out to try to change the scope of this record and, and make it a, a bigger, more, more different record for them. And then the last song, uh, These Sticks. driving in the car listening to it with my wife um we both commented on how the beginning has this weird sort of similarity to um street spirit fade out by uh radiohead in the in the way that the guitar is picked out it's a clean guitar pick with like a little bit delay on it i don't know if you guys picked up on that but it has like this <laughs> a little bit sounding like that um and i mentioned earlier about the way that Dooley's able to build a song and crescendo and and, and create this like epic sweep to it this is another one of those tracks for me i think on the record this is the most successful one nobody really sings uh this the or yeah sings the word baby um quite as ominously as greg dooley does um he does it throughout the record he does on this song which and it works really well for me i think it's a really good album closer um i couldn't i don't i can't really imagine another track doing a better job of closing the record as far as this one the way that this one does i like the uh especially like the um the drums i think after royal cream this has i think to me the best uh sounding drums and the best performance of the drums on the record so i'm curious what you guys have to think about what you guys have to say about this particular track lee i'll start with you uh, for me, this one sounds like it could have existed on that first Twilight Singers record and not the way it, it came out, um, but the demos for it and the demos for that record were cut, you know, around the Black Love era. It was actually slated to go into production before 1965, but the Columbia Sony deal kind of they wanted an Afghan Wigs record first. So they they changed the order of it. And those demos of that first Twilight Singers record with songs like King Only and, and how they existed in a more stripped down format before all the post-production with the additional beats and, and everything was laid onto it. For me, this song really fits in with that same feel. And as the horns come into it, it, it does have that um, dark New Orleans uh, street flavor to it that I think is is so reminiscent of, of that period of, of where Greg's head was at musically. And I, I find it really, really interesting for that. And again, if you're looking at this record 
how you would close this particular record. There's no other song that's on this track list you would put here. I mean, this is definitely the closer here. And it's uh, it forms a nice cat piece to it. And, and the way it kind of dissolves at the end is is really reminiscent of a lot of their great album closers they've had in the past. So I'm a big fan of this one. Jay? Uh, I'd like to hear this song live. I think live it'll come across really, really dynamic and interesting. I think when you simple, you know, the drums on here, it's like a drum line kind of sound. There's probably multiple drum tracks going on here to create that sound. So I, I just love to hear that as one drummer interpreting how to do that and replacing all of this keyboard stuff and strings and all this with just guitars and an organ. Um, I think it'll actually when it, it's probably to me when they try to crescendo and get big on the record, it's probably the most successful at doing that. Um, so I think live, if they try to play the song, which a lot of this material is going to be interesting to see how they would play this live because so little of it is, a, you know, a band. Um, but if they do play this, I think it would be um, interesting to hear. I think it would be fairly successful. So normally at this part in the show, we would go to the wrap up where we would give our uh, overall review in the format of uh, Lee. We, we usually do this as, do you think this is a worthy album? Would, do you think this would make a better EP? Or you think this is only a decent single? Single being like two songs, A-side, B-side, and, and an EP being about five or six songs. So uh, I'm going to start with you, Lee. Where do you land? Worthy album, a better EP, or a decent single? Uh, you know, I'm all in on this. I'm going Worthy album. And I, I know that I'm probably coming across as being a huge fanboy, which I am, 100%. But I think that this record is so different that even the strongest fanboy has every right in the world to think that this is not their cup of tea. And I think that the band now is, is not the same band, obviously in terms of lineup and, and age and experience that they were in 1998. So uh, I'm all in though. I, I feel like this is a really, really interesting record from a group of musicians um, as a whole, even while they're not all the original members, I really respect and, and love to hear them play. And, and Dooley's songwriting and his lyrics uh, and his voice in particular are really getting stronger. So uh, I'm all in. Worthy record. Jay? You know, I feel, I actually feel I'm going to be in the minority on this. You know, I, I think it's probably an issue of semantics, but it is what it is. You know, this music's personal, subjective. Um, to me, this is a worthy and probably the best Twilight Singers record. Unfortunately, I just don't see it as an Afghan Wigs record. It's just missing the key elements that I identify with being an Afghan Wigs record. And I think each band sort of has, for all of us, has, you know, those couple of things that just have to be there to be that band. Otherwise, it's just, you know, just a name on a on a album cover. You know, we could probably go through every band that's existed and try to identify what those core pieces are. Um, this record just lacks that. But I think the songs are, are good. And I think, you know, in terms of a Dooley, you know, project and a, and a Twilight Singers project, I think it's, it's it's worthy. Let me ask you guys this before I, I give mine. Do you think there's any point to this being called the Afghan Wigs or there being a Twilight Singers? At this point, shouldn't it just be Greg Dooley? Because he's really he's the songwriter. He's the guy who's writing most of the guitar parts. He's even writing the drum parts. He's writing all the lyrics. Is there is there really a point to even dividing those things up anymore and calling them you know band names? When I heard that. Um... McCollum wasn't on the record. My hope was that Curly had such a huge part in this that it would sort of make sense. 
but the fact that you know really royal cream is the only song on the record where at least first blush you can say oh that's him playing bass you know i'm left with one song on this record where i can hear any other member so i totally agree with you i mean i don't even see the distinction between um dooley's solo record and the twilight singers you know i just why not just call it greg dooley i don't it's just you know what i mean like I think they're all, it's all good material. I think some of it's better than others, but none of it is the Afghan wigs, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, I love music, and I think that semantics are important. You know, I get really passionate about a lot of different bands, and and when it comes to bands carrying on names without members and, and that sort of thing, I, I do take offense to it a lot of times. But But with this, I think ultimately calling it an Afghan wigs record means that Greg and John want to play music together, and... Why wouldn't they call it the, the same name of the band they were in for all those years? It makes total sense to, to do that. And, and sure, there are people that have changed the lineup along the way um, from their early days. But it makes sense to be uh, the Afghan Wigs with those guys are involved. Well, I'm giving this a worthy album. It's not a perfect album, and I don't think that this topples any particular Wigs record in terms of... You know, this is not better than Gentleman or 1965 in, in terms of or Black Love in terms of being, you know, my favorite records. But to me, this continues the streak of I don't think that the Wigs or Greg Dooley have made a bad record. There isn't a record that I go, I can't listen to that record. There's no metal machine music. There's no, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? There, uh, too, and, soon, and there have, too soon. <laughs> that's sorry. Um, <laughs> No, there are, there are albums by bands that I really, really, there are bands that I really, really love that have made albums that I really, really can't stand. This is a band that has, and, and Greg Dooley is a songwriter and a performer that I have yet to have receive a, a you know, a, a, an album or a, an EP or whatever, where I haven't enjoyed it in some way, shape or form, uh, which is a pretty, you know, considering how many records he's put out. Uh, either with the wigs and the Twilight Singers and the Gutter Twins and the solo stuff, that's a pretty strong track record. So I feel like his quality control is, is pretty high and his um, songwriting, while it has evolved and changed, has remained consistently consistent. That's a way to put it. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that sounds like an odd way to put it, but I like... This is what I expected, but I was also surprised. Is a way to, I guess, wrap this one up in terms of my opinion on the on the record. After that Usher thing, I was like, well, anything can happen, but I know it's going to sound like some combination of the Wigs and the Twilight Singers, and that's essentially what I feel like it ended up being. And Jay, your comment about this being the best uh, Twilight Singers record, you know, that may be true. I still think Powder Burns is my favorite twilight singers record um i don't know if this beats powder burns as being the best twilight singers record but as far as combining those two camps almost needs to be its own category i think um in terms of having you know the twilight singers personnel and the wigs personnel on the same record so that's it you get uh three thumbs up although with jay's thumbs up i'm still confused uh, <laughs> yeah, there one. seem to be a lot of reservations with that thumbs up. <laughs> well, um, it's it's it, you asked me if it's a worthy record. Yes, it is a worthy record. It's not an Afghan Wigs record. So for those who who care, 
you know, and that's my opinion. My opinion is it's not an Afghan Wigs record. It's a Twilight Singers record with the name Afghan Wigs on it. So that to me holds a whole other criteria. That, and that's why one of the reasons I think Tim and I have avoided doing bands with that we really, really, really love. You know, a lot of this 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 show the last three years has been discovering new bands we didn't hear of or albums that we sort of were interested in. We're going back and checking out to see if they're, you know, how they hold up. We've kind of avoided doing, you know, the the holy grails for us. And <laughs> this is one of the reasons because they take on a whole other meaning. You know, it's just not something casual that, um, you know, you heard and you kind of love like for a little bit. I mean, this band, I know for me and I, probably for Tim, was it is a transformational band for us. You know, they opened our eyes to a whole other aspect of music we didn't know existed and you know inspired us creatively and so it just carries more weight with it you know so when you ask me mm-hmm. about the record you know what, what what i think of it yeah i think it's it's a worthy record is like tim said i agree i don't think he's ever put out anything that's even some of the, the weird singles and you know side things he's done it's always compelling you know and it's always a you know it's always quality just in this case to me that name holds a different weight than that above you know above and beyond just you know it's worthy or you know it's, it's good it's you know, there's those two or three records um they're just they're perfect and this isn't perfect <laughs> so i totally respect that yeah i totally respect that by the way well lee we have been doing this for well over two hours and we need to uh <laughs> we need to give our listeners a break uh, sure. This is going to be a long record. So I want to say thank you for joining us, um, coming on and, and talking about the wigs. And remind everybody they need to go to your website, summerskiss.com. Compendium of everything Greg Dooley and everything related to the wigs and Twilight Singers. I just want to say how much we appreciate that because that's through the lean years, that was where we were going to find old information and dig up stuff. And, and there's also, uh, I forgot to mention at the beginning, you have the Summer Kiss records where you put out the the covers release correct yeah we uh a few years ago i put together a record with uh, some artists that were influenced by the wigs or friends of the wigs who recovered who covered their favorite wig songs for the record and so that's on cd you can get it on amazon or you can go to summerskissrecords.com or um, yeah something like that summerskiss that sounds like what the url would be right and uh and pick it up and uh there's you know susan marshall who toured with the band and steve myers who toured with the band his band mighty fine but then there's also um joseph arthur and mark lanigan it's a really nice collection of different musicians who have duly ties doing their favorite afghan wig songs very cool very cool well i think we have spent um, all of our collective energy this evening on the uh, new album we'll be uh, returning to our regular old reviews from uh, 15 20 years ago <laughs> next week but again I want to say thanks to Lee when we uh, when the wigs put out their next new record in uh, uh, let's see it was 16 years since the last record so we're talking about 2030 when the next uh, wigs record will probably come out um, we'll have you back on again. I'll talk to you guys before then. It'll be before okay. 2030. <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me on. <laughs> Thanks. Absolutely. It. All right. And uh, if you like what you heard on this episode, please be sure to uh, leave some positive feedback over at iTunes. And um, of course, if you want to request a review for a future episode, head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com and hit our request a review page. 
Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Oh,